You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 14, when you found your place, we will bow together before we begin. Our gracious God, we are so thankful to you for your mercy and your grace, which has given us your word. It is the word of truth revealed by the spirit of truth, and all that does not agree with it and all that contradicts it is a lie. We pray that you would help us to know and to understand the truth, to to love it. We pray that you would incline our hearts to it and to yourself, that we may delight in your word and that you would give us understanding in it. That is our desire. We pray that you would grant that because we believe it to be your will for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a little bit of a heads up about where we're going to be going in the next couple of weeks as it pertains to preaching. Uh, next Sunday, of course, is the Sunday before Christmas, and I don't know what we're going to do about that as far as a Christmas message. I don't think there's anything in the Gospel of John that we'll be looking at. So uh, I've been told there are other books in the Bible other than John. I'm going to look into that for you and see, and we'll... <laughs> I might grab something from one of those books, or we might just go seeker-sensitive and we'll play clips of It's a Wonderful Life, and I'll give you a running commentary on that. But then we've got the Christmas Eve service coming up, and we're going to obviously do something um, other than John and other than It's a Wonderful Life for the Christmas Eve service. On December 28th, uh, Justin Peters is going to preach for me so that I have a couple of days to take with my family there around the holidays, and then beginning on the first Sunday of the new year, which would be January 4th, uh, we'll be back in John chapter 14, picking it up at verse uh, 21. So today we are beginning at verse 18, and in the previous few weeks we've been looking at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We've looked at his relationship in the Trinity, his role with believers, um, and his submission to the Father and the Son, and, and gain an appreciation of, of who he is and what he has done on our behalf. And uh, the, consuming, the, the consuming interest of this final evening with Jesus and the disciples, at least as far as the disciples are concerned, is this repeated testimony, repeated teaching of Jesus that he was going to leave them. And this filled them with concern. It, it filled them with anxiety. Um, they were upset by this, obviously. And every promise of this upper room farewell discourse is intended to sort of soothe their fears and, and calm them down and give them confidence and to encourage them. And so it is with the promises regarding the Holy Spirit. When Jesus promised them that he was going to send them another helper and that that helper would would uh, give them boldness and testimony and assist them in the ministry, he was intending to communicate to his disciples that the ministry that they had been involved in was going to continue beyond his departure. They were going to be losing his physical presence, the blessing of his physical presence, but they were going to be gaining something far more dynamic and something uh, far more... Real is not the right word, but something far more significant, and that is the spiritual presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit, who now is not just with his followers physically, but with his followers spiritually because he indwells us, and it will be that way forever. There are, in this farewell discourse, four passages that teach on the subject of the Holy Spirit, where Jesus comes back to the subject of the Holy Spirit. And whenever we study Scripture, we always want to look for structure, and I've told you this before. We always look for how and how a truth is communicated or how it's unfolded and, and the structure of a passage. It gives us some idea of the author's intention of how we're to understand his words. And so this last week I was thinking through this farewell discourse and I asked myself the question, why is it that Jesus 
continually comes back to the subject of the Holy Spirit. Why doesn't he just sort of begin the evening by talking and teaching about the Holy Spirit, put all of that teaching in one location, and then move on to the next subject, the vine and the branches, and then the next subject? Why does he sort of sprinkle the teaching on the Holy Spirit throughout the course of the whole evening or throughout the course of this entire teaching time? Why does he keep coming back to it? And then a thought struck me. Now, I don't have thoughts very often, but when I do, they strike me. And I ask myself, what if Jesus is not returning or coming back to the subject of the Holy Spirit? What if, in fact, he's really never leaving the subject of the Holy Spirit at all? In other words, what if the reality of the indwelling of the Spirit of God is this new reality in light of which we are to understand everything else about this upper room discourse? All of these other subjects that Jesus brings up. That he's not kind of coming back to it, but he's never really leaving it. He's just fleshing out the implications of what this new reality would mean. Let me show you what I mean by this. Your Bibles are open to John chapter 14. We looked at, in verse 16 and 17, the verses that deal with the Helper, the Holy Spirit. In the very next passage, Jesus speaks of loving Him. He who loves me will keep my commandments, uh, beginning in verse 21. And he continues that theme all the way through the end of chapter 14. Is it not appropriate to say that really I have no ability or desire to obey Christ or to express my love for Him through obedience apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? Is it really even possible for us as Christians to obey Him as we ought and to love Him as we ought without the Holy Spirit? I don't think it is. And then in chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, going through the end of verse 11, is the passage about the vine and the branches and us abiding in Christ and Him abiding in us and us bringing forth much fruit as a result of that abiding. Is it even possible for us to understand that apart from a reference to and an understanding of the Holy Spirit and His work in us? You can't even begin to grasp the idea of abiding, what it means for me to abide in Him and Him to abide in me, apart from the reality of the Holy Spirit. Then beginning in chapter 15, verse 12, he turns to the subject of the disciples loving one another and the relationship that is to exist between believers and love one another and express that love. And greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And so I've given you this commandment that you love one another. Is it even possible for me to love you and for you to love me and for us to express this this idea of fellowship and relationship inside the body of Christ apart from the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Is it even possible for us to live out the one another's of mutual love and accountability and service and sacrifice for one another apart from the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? I don't think it is. And then Jesus turns to the subject of their relationship to the world and that they would have to give bold testimony to those who hated them and those who persecuted them. And he warns his disciples there will come a time when those who kill you will think they are offering God service. But you are to continue to give out the bold testimony and know that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will be with you. He will be helping you do that because he has, I have been with Him from the beginning and you have been with me from the beginning. Is it even possible for us to give bold testimony to an unbelieving world and to stand up under persecution and to face down those who would think that they are offering God's service by killing us? Is it even possible to do that apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? I don't believe it is. And then chapter 16 is a longer passage on the subject of the Holy Spirit. See how everything about this upper room discourse is, is really not just a series of, of subjects? It is really, I think, the implications of living out a spirit-indwelt life. What is that going to look like? It's not as if Jesus is just giving us a list of subjects. Talk on heaven and then talk on love and then mention the spirit and then talk about persecution and then the world and then the spirit and then giving testimony and then loving one another and then obeying him and then the spirit and then, oh yeah, we'll come around to the spirit again. 
The Holy Spirit is not one subject among many that Jesus is just sort of hitting on in these final hours of his life. The Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit of God and the people of God is the single defining reality of being a believer in Christ that now defines and determines my prayer life, my fruitfulness, my abiding, my relationship to you, my relationship to the world, my relationship to the truth, my relationship to the Father. Everything discussed here really is the working out of this one grand reality that Christ is in us and that is the hope of glory. Everything else here describes that. So, what we have here in this next passage, beginning in verses 18 to 20, is some of the implications of the work of the Spirit of God in the life of His people. So pick it up in verse 18. I'll give you three points here, three things, three blessings, if you were, or promises, that are ours because of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That is the promise of His presence. In verse 19, we have the promise of our resurrection with Christ. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And then in verse 20, the promise of union with Him. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The presence of Christ, resurrection with Christ, and our union with Christ. Or our resurrection in Christ, and our union with Christ. Those three blessings. And I understand as we, as I speak about our union with Christ, and our resurrection in Christ, and the presence of Christ, that these are not realities that are new to probably anybody in here. We've already talked about these in the Gospel of John, but sometimes it's good to kind of review things and to remind us of the things that we already know. So that's what we're going to be doing. First, the first precious promise that he gives is his, our presence or his presence with us. Beginning again in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And that I think is a continuation of the promise or a restatement of the promise in verse 17, that the Spirit would be with them and the Spirit would be in them. Uh, Jesus is here, I think, restating the promise of verse 17, but adding this, this new dimension that we are to understand, that the presence of the Spirit with the people of God is, in fact, the spiritual presence of Christ Himself. Once again, not because they are the same person, but because they are the same God. To have the Spirit of God dwell in us is to be united with and indwelt by that which is also the same substance with the Father and the Son. And so uh, I think verse 18 is just sort of amplifying verse 17. That word orphans is a graphic term. Notice that I I think Jesus could not have used a better term to describe how the disciples would have been feeling at that very moment. I will not leave you as orphans. When you hear hear the word orphan, what do you think of? Not orphan Annie necessarily, but what do you think of? You probably think of somebody who is destitute. Somebody who cannot fend for themselves. Somebody who is not worldly wise or savvy in terms of of how to live in this world by themselves, somebody who needs things provided for them because they cannot provide for themselves. Or you might think of somebody who, who feels the emotional sting of loneliness. Orphans, we usually think, when we think of orphans, we usually think of people who are destitute in terms of not having any solid relationship with anybody. They're put into an orphanage. They become one number among many people, sort of a nameless, faceless entity, just another one of the kids that will grow up in that system They're lonely, they're without any kind of support or family. Many times orphans are kids who have had everything secure and everything certain and everything familiar yanked from them suddenly. Can you think of any better word to describe the disciples at this moment? These were men who are about to have everything safe and secure and certain that they thought yanked from them. These are men who have left their houses, their families, their livelihoods and their business. They have left everything familiar to follow after Jesus. 
and now he is leaving. And for the last three years, they have been depending upon him for fellowship and for uh, their sustenance and for provision and for wisdom and for spiritual guiding and maturing and teaching and all of those things. They have been depending upon him, and suddenly all that is about to be taken from them. The word orphan could not have been a better word. There could not have been a better word than orphan to describe how the disciples would have felt at this moment. He was going to leave them as orphans. So he was still going away, he was still leaving them, but he wouldn't leave them in that condition of being orphaned. And so Jesus says, I will come to you. Now here's the question of the day. What coming is Jesus referring to when he says, I will come to you? If you read through the commentaries, Bible scholars and Bible students are kind of divided up into three camps on this. I'll give you the three camps. There are some who say that when Jesus says, I will come to you, that he is referring to the resurrection. I think this is the position taken by John MacArthur in his commentary. So he would say the resurrection and option two, which I'm going to give you here in just a second. That he's speaking of the resurrection. In other words, he was going to, in a matter of hours, he would die and he would disappear from them. They would not be with him. They would not have his physical presence with them. But after three days, he would rise again from the dead. And so in resurrection, he would come again to them and not leave them in the condition of being absent from them physically. Now this seems to fit, especially in light of the context since verse 19, is describing resurrection. Look at verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. He is describing there his death. The world will no longer see him, but you, the disciples, would see him. He would rise again. They would see him. And then because he lives, he is the living one, they too would also live, describing their participation in his resurrection. So it seems fitting. Verse 19 seems to describe resurrection. So some people think that verse 18 is describing resurrection. But not so quick. There's a second possibility. It might be that Jesus is here describing not his bodily resurrection from the dead, but the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now this seems to fit the context since in verse 17, Jesus describes this new reality of the indwelling of the Spirit and that began at Pentecost. And it wasn't, it wasn't a reality prior to that, but that began, that indwelling of the Spirit began at Pentecost. And so the, the remedy for the orphaned condition for us, not feeling orphaned, is the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That seems to fit the context. Or it might be third, and this is the position of J.C. Ryle. And by the way, MacArthur would say it's the resurrection fulfilled that, and then, and then that reality sort of continued in through Pentecost. So he would kind of see them as one. Then there's J.C. Ryle, the ancient, well, it's not ancient, 1800s. Some of you were alive then, so it's not ancient in those terms. But in the 1800s is when J.C. Ryle lived. He, he took it to be a reference to the second coming of the Lord which fits the context as well, since verse 3, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Right? And thus we shall ever be with the Lord. So J.C. Ryle says this is going to be fulfilled when Christ returns. Now, here's the thing. All three of those are tied to the context. All three of those would fit the flow of the text. You could insert that meaning, any one of those three meanings, into that text, and it wouldn't wouldn't jumble it up at all. It would make sense. You could make a, a case for any of those three. I think it's possible, and I think sometimes the Scripture writers do this and the Scripture authors do this, that it's intentionally vague. Why would he do that? Because I think you could make the case that all three of these, in some sense, are answers to our orphaned condition. He, Jesus is not physically present with us, and so he would come again and he would remedy that in his resurrection. And so we know that because he is raised that we look forward to being with Him forever. It's also true that at Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit remedies our orphan condition because though He is not physically present with us, we certainly are not spiritually orphaned in that the Spirit of Christ dwells within His people and lives within His church corporately. 
And it is also true that in the second coming of the Lord, when he comes back, that we will be with him forever. And that will remedy our physical orphanage, orphanness, our physically orphaned condition, when we will no longer be without him physically, but we will be with him in his presence and that everlastingly. So it's possible that the biblical writers had, uh, that John had all three of these in mind and that it's intentionally vague because all of them in some way contribute to the fulfillment of not leaving us orphaned. But if I had to go with one of them, if I had to swear by one of these, I would say it's Pentecost. That's the position I would take. If it's the resurrection, if the resurrection is what answered their orphan condition, then did not Jesus 40 days later orphan them again by leaving? He did. And if the if it's the second coming of Christ that remedies our orphan condition, then every Christian up till today has lived their entire Christian life as orphans, because we're all still waiting for him to return. The only thing to me that seems to remedy the entire orphanness of us is that he sent his spirit to dwell within us. And that is what leaves us not in this orphan condition. Now, the fact that the spirit of Christ is with us and is present has certain implications. And let me give you a few of them. First, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is itself the very presence of Christ. And we always have to remember this, that Getting the Holy Spirit to live inside of the heart, the soul, united to the believer, is not a downgrade. I said that either last week or a couple of weeks ago, and I want that to echo in your mind. That is not a downgrade. Everything always in the plan of God, redemptively speaking, has always been to add to what came before. Never to take away from it. We have never been downgraded. Revelation has always increased. The light has always gotten brighter. The fullness has always been given. The blessings have always increased, never gone never gone backwards. And so to have Christ absent from us physically, it is better to have the Holy Spirit with us spiritually. It is better to have the Spirit of God dwell within us than to have Christ physically present with us. It is to our advantage that He go away so that the Spirit might come. So the Holy Spirit is the very presence of Christ. A second implication of this is that you and I then have the fulfillity to obey his commands. I don't think that it is any accident that John in verse 15 says, if you, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he speaks about the Holy Spirit. And then beginning in verse 21, he says it again. The one who, uh, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. There is, there is sort of woven in with this teaching on the Spirit of God, this responsibility that we have to obey his word and to obey his commandments. And the one who does not obey him does not love him. With the dwelling of the Spirit of God in us, we have the power to obey him. We do not have the power or the strength to do anything that he asks us to do apart from the indwelling of the Spirit of God. But with the Spirit of God indwelling us, then we have the power and the strength to obey him. I can mortify sin. I can put it to death. I can deny myself. I can resist temptation. I can say no to the flesh. I can do all of those and I have strength to obey him because of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. This also is a powerful motivation for holy living. It's a powerful motivation for holy living. Does not this reality of the Spirit of God living in us have to, have to determine what it is that we look at with our eyes on our phones, our tablets, or our computers when nobody else is looking? Is that not a motivation for holy living? It ought to be. You realize that sin is only alluring because we convince ourselves that we do it alone? It's the only reason sin is alluring. If we really were gripped by the reality that we are indwelt and constantly with the Spirit of God, Christ Himself always with us, if we were gripped by that reality, sin would lose its allure. Temptation would lose its allure. Sin is only alluring because we convince ourselves that we are alone in it. 
And does this not also then a motivation for service to the Lord? If you and I have the confidence that everything that we do in the giftedness and the power of the Holy Spirit, that it is Christ who is doing it through us and in us, and that everything he has called us to do, he gives us the strength to do, and that he will bless it according to however he has determined that he is going to bless it, does that not give us confidence in gospel proclamation and serving him? I think it does. It's a powerful motivation for holy living and for service. Well, that's the first blessing, the presence of Christ in verse 18. The second one is our resurrection with Christ in verse 19. Verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. The after a little while there refers to really within a couple of hours. Within a couple of hours, the world would no longer see him, Christ, but the disciples then would see him. What is he describing there? Within a couple of hours, they would seize him. The world would seize him. They would put him on a cross. They would kill him. And then he would be taken away. And in terms of the world ever seeing him again, they never would. They never saw him in resurrection. After the death of Christ, as far as the world was concerned, they never saw him again. And after the resurrection, only believers saw him. You realize that all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus were all to believers? There's no record of Jesus ever appearing to Pontius Pilate or Annas or Caiaphas or the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin or any of them. All of the resurrection appearances of Jesus listed in 1 Corinthians 15 were all to believers with the possible exception, one of them, of Saul of Tarsus. I'm not even sure if that is an exception or if the vision that Saul saw of Jesus on the Damascus Road was actually after the Spirit of God regenerated his heart. I'm not sure that's that's an exception. But in terms of the world, the world would never see him, but he would rise again and the disciples would see him. And then look at a statement. Because I live, you will live also. This is the promise of our resurrection in Jesus Christ. Our resurrection in him. Because I live, in its present tense, it's a very interesting way for Jesus to say it. Because I am the living one or because I have life is kind of how we would translate it. Because he lives and he is life in himself, we will live also. This is a way of Jesus describing the very life that he has as not being a derived life, but a life that he has because of who he is. Because he is God in human flesh, because he is God incarnate, and because he is the ever-living one, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who has life, and in him is the light, in him is the life of men and the light of men. He has life in himself. He doesn't receive life from the Father. He has it in himself, he says in John chapter 5. And because he has life in himself, he can give life to whomever he wishes. In John chapter 10, and he's describing laying down his life. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Even his physical death, that he gave up his life, his physical life, he didn't cease to exist, nor did he cease to be God. But his physical death did not extinguish the life that he has in himself. He offered his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, and he died, but he did not cease to exist. And because he is the ever-living one, that life must result in resurrection. And because he lives, we will live also. And that's a promise of the resurrection that you and I get to enjoy. You realize that all the promises that God has given to us in Christ, all of those promises, they have to do with the life that he has and that he gives to his own. Let me give you a series of verses Beginning back in John chapter 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, 
those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In chapter 6, Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That's our resurrection. He's going to raise up all whom the Father has given to him. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 7, Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asked Mary and Martha, do you believe this? All of those promises of our future resurrection hinge upon this one reality, that he lives. And because he lives and because he is life, I must also live. That's his promise. You realize that one of these days, we are going to hear the voice of the Son of God and the soul spirit that is inside of each one of us will be united with a glorified physical body for those who are in Christ. For those who are not in Christ, they get a resurrected body as well, but it spends eternity in, in conscious torment, uh, eternal conscious torment because of the sins committed against God, because they've offended God. But believers who are in Jesus Christ, we receive a glorified body. Because He lives, we will live also. This last week I did a funeral. And I said at the funeral, uh, it was at the graveside, I said the same thing I say at every funeral and every graveside. I quote Ecclesiastes chapter 7, where Solomon says, it is better to go to the house of feasting than the house of mourning. Because this is the end of all men, Solomon says. And the living take it to heart. That is a profound verse. It is better to go to a funeral home than a party. Why? Because at a funeral home, we are reminded that this is the end of all men. All of us into a box, and into the ground. Every one of us will die. And the living take it to heart. The living need a solemn, sober, and constant reminder that we are all going to die. But for those who are in Christ, this life is not the end. We will rise again. Because He lives, we will also live. That is His promise. Now there's a third one, beginning in verse 20. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Oh, sorry. Oh, I was reading verse 21, sorry. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And you thought you were crazy. I was the crazy one. Verse 20, that is our union with Christ. Not only the blessing of His presence and our resurrection with Him, but then also our union with Him. And this describes the intimate union that exists between Christ and His people. In verse 20, when He says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, there's some question as to what day is He talking about? And this goes back to the same question we had to answer back in verse 18 when we said, what coming is he talking about? Is Jesus saying that on the day of his resurrection, when he lives and they see him, that then they will know that he is in the Father? Or is Jesus saying that on the day of Pentecost, that then the disciples will know that he is in the Father and they in him and he in them? Or is it when he returns that we will know that he is in the Father and we are in him and he is in them? Now, if you're thinking through the implications of all of those, you probably already come to the conclusion. To be consistent with the context, I think it would have to be Pentecost again. There was nothing in the resurrection of Christ itself that said, ah, He is in the Father. And there is nothing in, there's nothing that we are waiting forward to in the return of Christ that will suddenly make us realize that He is in the Father and He is in us. But what is the reality that exists today that assures us that He is in the Father and that we are in Him and that He is in us? It's Pentecost. It's Pentecost. At the Pentecost event, when the Spirit of God came to dwell within His people, 
That was proof positive that the son had asked the father to send the helper and the helper had come and that the father and the son are one in substance and one in nature and that the son is in the father. And Pentecost is also proof positive that we are in him and he is in us. So not only is there a union between the father and the son, but that union, whatever that consists of, that intimate, indissoluble, unbreakable union between the father and the son is in some way mirrored in the relationship that exists between us as believers and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Just as he is in the Father, so we are in him. There is an indissoluble and inseparable union between the Son of God and his people that is mirrored in the union that exists between the Son of God and the Father, who is also God. Does that make sense? In all of John chapter 17, Jesus is going to talk about this union that exists One of the profound realities of heaven is that in salvation, not just have we been forgiven and not just have we been given righteousness in Jesus Christ, but in salvation we have been inseparably united with the Godhead himself so that we dwell in him and he dwells in us. What does it mean to be in Christ? This is a reality that the Apostle Paul describes over and over again in his epistles as he speaks of those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. To be in Christ is to be in the realm of Christ, meaning that everything that he did is effectual for me because I am in him. His death is my death. His resurrection is my resurrection. His payment for sin is my payment for sin. His righteousness is my righteousness. My sin becomes his sin because I'm inseparably united in him. Everything he did, he did on behalf of me. And all those who are in him, not on behalf of all those who are in Adam, all those who are in Adam receive all of the best blessings and benefits of being in death, which is eternal wrath, But those who are in Christ receive all of the blessings and benefits that accrue to them because they are in the Son. And because of their identification with the Son, everything the Son did, He did on behalf of His people. Have you ever been involved in a class action lawsuit? You've probably never gone and testified at one or had anything to do with it. You get a notice in the mail. If you want to opt out of the check we're going to send you in in 18 months, then check this and send it back. If not, you're part of this class. I've received half a dozen of those over the course of my life. It's kind of like a class action lawsuit. There is a lawyer somewhere who is acting on my behalf and he's arguing my case and everything he's doing is accruing benefits to me because I'm part of that class or I'm in that group. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. The lawyer gets a check for $250 million and I get a check for $3.12. But other than that, it's a really good analogy that what is done by one individual acting on behalf of an entire group of people, so it is in salvation because of what he has done He has secured righteousness and forgiveness for all those who are in him. And and here's the other difference in the analogy. Not only does the lawyer get the the big bulk of that, right? A great system in which we live, and we get the $3.12 or whatever it is. In salvation, those who are in Christ, we don't split up the Father's inheritance. We all share all of it equally. How does that work out in eternity? I don't know, because but because I am in Christ... Everything that the Father has is mine, all of it, and it's yours. It's not like we get to heaven and say, well, I'll take the gold doorknob, you get the gold hinges, you get the stained glass window, you get the carpet, we're all going to divide this up equally, like a share of an inheritance. No, all of the inheritance belongs to all of those for whom it was secured, and all of the inheritance is ours in full. That's what it means to be in Christ. But that's not the only reality of this union. Not only are we, not only are we in Him, And not in Adam, but we are in him, but he is in us. Verse 20 again. 
you in me and I in you. There is a mutual communion, a mutual fellowship, and a mutual union between God and his people. Um, we are in him in terms of our position. He is in us in terms of possession. We are in him in terms of that being our position because we are in him. The heavenlies are ours. We're seated in the heavenlies. We're forgiven. We are righteous. We have access to the Father because we are in him in terms of positionally. But he is in, in us in terms of possession. I don't possess Jesus in, not in him in that way, but he is in me in the terms of the Spirit of God as dwells within me. And the Spirit of God resides in my heart. And in that way, Christ is in me. And that is the hope of glory. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. How does Christ live in me? He lives in me by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1, 27, Paul says, this is the mystery of God hidden from ages past, that Christ is in us and that is the hope of glory. It's the hope of glory. Now, all three of these blessings, the presence of Christ, our resurrection in Christ, and our union with Christ, all of them are secured by the Spirit of God. All of them. We can say that Christ is present with us because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that if the Spirit of Him who raised up Christ from the dead dwells in you, He will also quicken your mortal bodies. He will give life to your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwells within you. So the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life to God's people on the day of resurrection. When the Son gives life to us and the Father gives life to us, the Spirit also gives life to us. By virtue of His living in us, we have uh, we have presence, the presence of Christ. We have our resurrection in Christ. And our union with Him comes because the Spirit of God is the means by which all of these blessings and all of these benefits become ours and are sealed to us. We are sealed in Him. So because He lives, we will live also. And all of these blessings and benefits, they can never be taken away from us. The world can never take them away. The government can never take them away. An act of Congress can never take them away. Listen, if they could take something away from you by signing, signing a document, they would. This, they can never take away from you. We can never be robbed of these things. And we have the absolute confidence that no matter what we face, disease, sickness, affliction, suffering, persecution, that there is nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, no created thing, nothing in all of God's creation that can possibly rob these things from us. They are ours, and because He lives, we will live also. Let's bow our heads together. Our gracious God, we thank you for all of the blessings that we have received. We know that we don't deserve any of them. We don't deserve them to be lasting. We don't deserve them to be permanent and, and uh, so infinite in their scope. And we've just been reminded this morning of uh, just a small part of what you have secured for us in the work of your son. So we thank you for that, and we pray that we might live out the implications of this, that we might be motivated to holy living, that we might be motivated to service, that we might constantly know your presence with us in all life situations and circumstances, that we would rest upon that. Help us to not be fearful. These promises are intended to calm the fears of the disciples, and we ought to look at them and not be fearful ourselves. So pray that our hearts, we ask that our hearts would be strengthened by these things and calmed by them, and that we might rest in your grace and the, the confidence of your unfailing love for us. We thank you that these things are ours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.